0: Our New Testament lesson is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged according to the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." This is the word of the Lord. Good morning,
1: One Ancient Hope. It's good to be with you, um, especially to be with with more of you um, and to, to sing with you. And because it's the word of God that creates, that crafts God's people, that calls and collects God's people, before we turn To the word of God, let us come together in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We thank you that you've gathered us around your word. We thank you, Father, for what your word does in our lives. And we pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intention for the scriptures. Even more, Father, we pray that you would apply them, Lord, in our lives. To our heads, to our hearts, and also to our hands. We ask these things in the name of your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is going to be our fifth sermon in our series on, on James, which is is looking at what James has to tell us about what it means to be a flourishing community, what it means to flourish together as God's people. And in particular, this week's passage exposes one of the the worst, one of the most dangerous things to the Christian community, partiality. And in fact, James, through this passage, is going to show us that partiality actually stands wholly opposed to the gospel, to the merciful welcome of God that he gives us in the gospel. Accordingly, if we're going to cultivate a flourishing community. We have to understand this danger of partiality, and we have to embrace the ways that God calls us to fight against it. And I want to look at this passage in three different sections and show how James characterizes this danger of partiality. The first section I want to look at is partiality and false faiths. Then I want to look at partiality and false distinctions. And lastly, I want us to look at partiality and the mercy of God. So towards that end, let's begin with partiality and false faiths. Look with me at James 2, verses one through three. James writes the following. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, James is putting this forward as showing partiality. And what James is doing is he's contrasting partiality with faith. He's showing that these things stand at utter odds with one another. But if we're going to wrestle, if we're going to reckon with what James has to say, we have to understand how this is so. We have to understand why this is so. And towards that end, we have to understand what is faith and what is partiality as James understands it. Towards that end, there's, there's actually a, a 17th century Dutch theologian. His name is Petrus von Maastricht. And he gives a very helpful notion of, of faith. And he gives us a notion of faith that actually works quite well in unpacking and untangling what James has to say. But Maastricht von Maastricht says, if you, if you look at faith, what you're going to do is you're going to find two parts. You're going to find an end, and you're going to find a, a means or more properly speaking, if we're talking about the saving faith that's elicited by, that's called forth from the gospel, you're going to find an end and a mediator. As von Maastricht writes, For no one can receive Christ as his mediator who has not previously received God as his highest end. So in this sense, to have saving faith is to have two particular things. One, it's to trust that God is our very highest end as humans. And second, it's to trust that Christ himself is the means or the mediator by which we attain this end. And to say that God is our highest end is to say that God is our greatest joy, that he is our source of the most profound enjoyment it's to say that the deepest desires of our heart are ultimately fulfilled in God alone. Even more, it's to say that in enjoying God as our greatest good, we actually become what God intends us to be. We are like this, the, the, the tree of Psalm one who reaches its full maturation, which reaches its full fruition. That is to say, by loving God as our highest end, that's actually the way that we become most properly human, because we're doing what we are meant to do. Recall that James himself in chapter 1 echoes and references Psalm 1. Psalm 1 tells us that blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. James tells us that blessed are those who love God, who love God as their greatest good, who love God. As their highest end. So, if that's faith, why exactly does faith stand against partiality? Well, James talks about a very special kind of faith. He says that saving faith is specifically faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And James' specificity here shows us that there must be other kinds of of faith. Other things that we can put our faith in other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Recall that that, that faith is both our highest end and the means by which we get that end. Faith is both what we want the most and the particular way that we get it. It's a what and it's a how. It's a particular what and a particular how. And and these things cannot be separated. So what does that mean in terms of partiality? Well, let's look at the scenario that James offers. He gives us a scenario of a rich man walking into, of all places, the assembly of the church. And the rich man is treated very, very well. However, there's also a poor man who comes into the assembly. And this man is demeaned and he's neglected. So if we think of this in terms of an end and a means, in terms of a what and a how, these actions are the how. These actions are how the assembly is accomplishing their goal, what the people in the church are doing to reach their highest end. But we have to ask, does this how, this mode of behavior, this means of acting, actually align with the highest end of trust in God? Do these two things go together? Because a how and a what, a means and an end, they have to align. You know, for example, if, if you walk into a kitchen and your friend is there and you're carrying an axe and your friend asks you, what are you going to do with that axe? And you tell them, well, I'm going to cook spaghetti. I suppose there's a sense in which an axe can cut spaghetti noodles, but (laughs) the axe is not what you want to cook the spaghetti. That means that how does not lead to the end, to the what of cooked spaghetti. You'd be much better off with a boiling pot of water. But James is telling us that as ridiculous as this is, there's an even deeper contradiction. It's a contradiction we find between the preferential treatment given to the poor, or sorry, to the rich, and the ultimate end of loving God. These things just don't lead to the other. You cannot cook spaghetti with an ax, and you cannot love God by showing partiality, by showing preferential treatment to the rich. In fact, James is showing us that our how our behavior in this sense, exposes our what, what actually is our highest end, at least functionally speaking. Our how is a kind of diagnostic of our what. Our means is a kind of diagnostic of our actual end, the actual thing that we're directing our life toward. James is saying saying that our preferential treatment of the rich actually works to expose our deepest desires, We may espouse God as our very deepest, as our very highest desire, but it's our actions that really show us the true state of our heart. Then, just as now, we are tempted to favor those who are rich in resources. And this is because we're tempted to look at those with resources as means to an end. What do we want? Well, we want the end of of status, We want the end of professional opportunity. We want the the end of a better social network. We want the end of access to wealth. We even want the end of of protection from law that certain relationships can, can bring. And James is saying that all of this serves to expose an idol, serves to expose what we are actually directing our life toward. Partiality shows us that we want these things more than we want deep fellowship and communion with the very Lord of the universe. James is telling us that the how of how we treat others exposes what are your true deepest desires. And he's telling us that preferential treatment of one group of persons over another cannot lead to the end Cannot lead to the what of God. These are totally opposed from one another. James is telling us that the way we treat others is a powerful diagnostic, a powerful way to see what we truly love and to seek most in life. And he's calling us to step back and ask each one of us, how do we treat other people? Think about your your own last week of of interactions, the, the conversations, the discussions that you've had. And ask yourself, have you yourself shown partiality in any way? Have you rejected the other? Have you seen the other as merely a means to your own success instead of welcoming the other? Because James is telling us if we're showing any kind of partiality, the ultimate end of our action, what we're seeking, what we're pushing towards is not the love of God, but the love of ourself. They become means, instruments, or even obstacles to our own prowess, to our own personal and professional advancement. And James is telling us that all partiality is directly opposed to a believing, a receiving, and a trusting faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he's going to take us deeper in the next section. Partiality and false distinctions. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. James says the following. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James here is showing us that partiality cuts much deeper than mere practices. He's saying that we have become judges with evil thoughts. And I believe what James is doing here is he's, he's calling us back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sought to be their own judge. This is reminiscent of the very original sin of humanity. Adam and Eve sought to know and judge good and evil apart from any relation, any reference, and without any reverence for God. James here gives the example of the rich person. The rich person then simply becomes a means of our professional or personal advancement. And as for the destitute, the poor person, well, that person is merely an obstacle. And James is telling us that when we divide people like this, we are making false and evil distinctions. We are making distinctions apart from the good and gracious purposes of God this is not how God has called us to understand one another. And importantly, these false and evil distinctions, they actually only get traction if our own comfort, if our own success, if our own love of ourself becomes the highest functional end of our life. If we love ourselves more than we love God, we direct all things to the end that is ourselves, rather than than the end that is God. Think again about the the ax. So it's true that that no one knows an ax as an instrument for cooking spaghetti, but we all know the ax as something that can chop wood. That's something that the ax does. However, we can also know the ax in other ways. We can make distinctions which God never intended. Sadly, in a fallen world, we can know the axe as an instrument for murder. It's never meant to be used like this, but sadly in our world, it is. And it sounds strange to say to modern ears, but not all knowledge is, so to speak, good knowledge. Because some knowledge flows from our sad and tragic and evil ends. The bad, the sad, the tragic goals, the sad and tragic what's that we pursue. If we pursue ends such as murder or self aggrandizement, we have a kind of sad and tragic knowledge. We come to know the axe as an instrument of, of murder, something an axe should never be. We even come to know the neighbor as either an obstacle or an instrument to our success. And we know them in these sad and tragic ways because we seek the sad and tragic end of loving ourself above anything and everything else. But God calls us to something different. He seeks us to know the world, to inhabit the world, to love the world in a way that gives life. Um, so to, 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 to give an example or an illustration, um, so my family, we love car camping. And at some point, we would love to be hardcore campers who can sort of take it to the, the next level. But until that happens, we found ourselves living vicariously through, through Bear Grylls and the TV show Man vs. Wild. And it's a great show. And what they do is they drop off Bear Grylls in the wild. And he has to go and he has to survive and he has to find civilization. And the great thing about Bear Grylls is he's able to see his environment in a way that is wholly producing, or productive of, of life. So Bear Grylls we will see, to me, what just looks like tree bark. And for him, um, it's something to start and to kindle a fire. I see a weed, and for Bear Grylls, it's something to heal cuts and infections. Um, I see a leaf, and what Bear Grylls sees is something that would be great to top a shelter. I see parts of an animal that I would never, ever eat, and Bear Grylls sees nutrition. And so what Bear Grylls is able to do is to look around and see how everything is productive to life, how everything used in the right way can actually guide him towards life. And some of these distinctions are very important. Um, What is not a false distinction is knowing what mushrooms will give you nutrients and what mushrooms will kill you because they're poisonous. So we have to have the right sort of distinctions. But James is telling us that there's false distinctions, and just as it would be a false distinction to say that this poisonous mushroom is good for your health, and this good mushroom will actually kill you, it's actually more deadly to make the distinction of this rich person is worthy of my service, and this poor person deserves my neglect. Because if God himself is our greatest end, then we actually understand everything in light of God. And we see that that all persons, no matter what false distinctions we might make, are made in the image of God. And that is their primary identity. That, at the most foundational level, affects our relation to them. And so it should not surprise us that as we move forward in this section, James presents each group as they relate specifically to God. We have to remember that that James himself attacks false distinctions between the rich and the poor. And these distinctions come only when we make ourselves our greatest end, our greatest desire. And what James does is gives us some specific examples. But in doing so, he also keeps us from false distinctions. What he's doing us is showing some particular ways that the rich tend to hurt the church and the poor tend to help the church. He's telling us that the poor are rich in faith and he's telling us that the rich drag his readers into court and blaspheme Jesus Christ. Again, we can't read here that James is telling us about every rich person or every poor person. If that was the case, James himself would be making the very same false distinctions that he's warning us against he's not doing that. He's not giving us a simplistic distinction. Again, he's showing us the particular ways that the church tends to be helped by the poor in ways it might be hurt by the rich. In particular, James is showing us that those who are lacking in worldly resources have crucial benefits that are necessary for the life of the church. Crucial benefits that we neglect to our own peril. So what James is calling us to is a more nuanced, more complex, and more dignifying view of each person in the pews. I actually read this quote before during the, the first sermon, but it's, it's, it's really good, and I want to read it again. Um, it's by New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, and it's from his own commentary on James. And, and he writes the following about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with destitution. He says the following, quote, Poverty, in a sense, exposes the truth of the human situation in need of God. It dispels the illusion that wealth so often encourages, the illusion of being self-sufficient and secure with no need of God. The poor are those whose material condition enables them to see more clearly than most the human need to be wholly reliant upon God. It is in this sense that the biblical poor are understood as paradigmatic in their faith. End quote. So, what Bakum and what James is telling us here is that those who are lacking in worldly resources are actually rich in faith because they see directly through so many of the illusions that hold us captive. They see the ways that each and every one of us are wholly dependent upon God and His. Mercy. Of course, we are called to steward and to steward diligently the gifts that God has given to us. But even the notion of stewardship presupposes the notion of gift. These are gifts that we are given by God and we are to steward them well. But once we forget that they're gifts, we have a totally um, dangerous and wrong orientation towards the things that we have. So let's ask ourselves, what's a good way to start here? And really, quite simply, I think practicing given our full and complete attention and engagement to absolutely everyone that we meet. Um, When my family served with a missions organization, there there was a guy I knew, and he was just no respecter of persons at all. And I remember a particular time when we were at some kind of event, and I looked over, and he was talking to the the president of the organization, and he was giving him his full, his complete, his wrapped attention. And then I happened to look over 15 minutes later, and he was talking to a six-year-old, and he was giving that six-year-old his full and complete and wrapped attention. And he wasn't seeing these interactions as means to some end to put himself forward. But really, everyone he talked to and every interaction he had just was an expression of his love for God. And I think that's a good place for us to start as, as well. You know, we can we can all ask ourselves, when was the last time that we seriously engaged, seriously gave attention to a child who is not our own, a child that we're not related to in any way. Because as Presbyterians, we believe that children are a part of the covenant community, and they're entitled to the benefits they're in, which means we as adults need to engage children. So maybe ask yourself after this service, is, is there a child that you can talk to, that you can engage deeply, even if you have to work at it? Because children are vital resources. They have a richness of faith that we cannot ignore. They show us not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. They show us what it's like to trust God at his word without skepticism or cynicism. And we need to learn this richness of faith from them. We neglect it to our own folly. And that brings us to our third and final point, partiality and the mercy of God. Look with me at James 2, 8 through 13. James writes the following. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So This is a complicated section. James is saying a lot here, but it actually serves to tie together everything that James has said up to this point first, we have to realize how this paragraph is absolutely drenched. It's dripping with the teachings of Jesus. We have to remember that that James himself, biologically speaking, according to the flesh, is the human brother of Jesus, and that James was likely the first document written in the New Testament. So, in terms of historical order, it actually stands closest to the teaching ministry of Jesus. We have to remember that, that Jesus summarized the second great commandment in the very same way, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we see here even echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that James himself may have actually attended. Jesus, too, like James, calls special attention to murder and adultery, and he shows us just how high the ethical standards are here. That if you have said a cruel or dismissive word towards another— you're guilty of of a murder. If you have given a lustful glance towards another, well, that's tantamount to adultery. James, like Jesus, is showing us that none of us keeps the law. None of us loves our neighbor as we should, let alone loves God as our greatest and best end. But James also makes an interesting move here. In verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? If you remember, uh, James actually uses this same phrase in chapter 1. We talked about it earlier. And for James, uh, that, that Greek term eleutheria is not a freedom from, but a freedom for. It's a freedom to become all that God intends us to be. Uh, We we, we looked at what one particular philosopher, D.C. Schindler, said about the notion of eleutheria in in the Hellenistic and the Greek context, which was the context in which James himself is writing. Schindler said that eleutheria represents the full flourishing of a nature. He says that it actually communicates the notion of perfection or completion, end quote. Which, of course, is interesting because in 1.4, James says the following, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfection and completion. So, Eleutheria is the freedom to become what God intends. It's to reach the full fruition of humanity, just as the Psalm 1 becomes what it is meant to be. So, the law of God is the law of liberty because it's what God gave us at creation— it's the instructed life of how we're meant to love God in all that we do, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. In a sense, it's the means by which we reach the end of a full and complete love for God. However, something happened. In Genesis 3, we find that humanity fell. We rebelled, and we introduced sin into the world. And something very sad happened. Because of sin, the law now functions in a new way. The law now serves to condemn us and to expose our sin. Rather than bringing us to God, the law shows us just how far we have fallen from God. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes, quote, that the law has become a threat, a letter that kills is not the essential truth about the law, but a historical accident contingent on human fallenness, end quote. That is to say it's, in a sense, wholly unnatural that the law condemns us. The reason that the law condemns us is because of the unnatural intrusion of sin into the world. And so the law no longer functions as God originally intended it to function. It has become a letter that kills. It doesn't bring us to God, but it shows us how far we are from God. But James gives us a way forward. He tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And this brings us back to faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if the law is no longer to hold us guilty, then two things must happen. One, we must pay the penalty for breaking the law. And two, we must actually keep the law. And here we come to God's mercy. For in Christ, we find that God, the Son, became human and suffered the penalty of the law and lived the perfect life of perfect love for God and neighbor that the law requires. And in so doing, Jesus himself becomes the means to God. He becomes the mediator to God. As Jesus himself tells us in John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And even perhaps James himself was there when Jesus uttered these words. So to have faith, again, means to have a how and a what, a means and an end. And James is telling us that Jesus Christ is this how. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to trust that he himself has taken your guilt that separates you from God and that he himself has given him or given you his very righteousness, the righteousness that connects you to God. And so if Jesus Christ through faith becomes our how, becomes our mean, means the law no longer condemns us. The law does convict us, but it pushes us to repentance into the arms of a forgiving God but it never becomes a letter that kills. The law is able to resume what John Calvin calls its principal use. The law is again able to guide us in the ways and the wonders of our good and gracious God. And this has always been a hallmark of the Reformed tradition, the particular tradition that Presbyterianism is a part of. Because this use of the law in guiding us to God is the use that God established at creation. It gives priority to what God has made over what humanity has mingled. If we understand the law's primary and principal use as that which condemns us, then we're actually understanding the law primarily in terms of our own sin rather than God's good and gracious purposes, which he has infused throughout all of creation. Because salvation itself is a restoration of creation. And in a sense, salvation restores the law to its proper purposes. It enables the law to do what it was always meant to do. Or better, we might say that we are changed, so now now the law has its proper effect in our lives. Think about a a fire. The the one thing a fire does is is burn. But depending on your relationship to that fire, you might have very different effects from that fire. If you are in an improper relationship to the fire— you are going to be burned, you are going to be seared, you might even be burned to death. However, if we find ourselves in the proper relationship to that fire, we can be warmed, we can be healed, we can be helped by that fire. And the law is similar. If we are in an improper relationship to God because we are outside of Christ, the law will utterly consume us. It will be a burning fire that destroys us. However, if we are rightly related to God because we are in Christ, the law becomes a warmer of our soul and kindles in our hearts a deep love for God. Because the law is no longer a letter that kills, for Christ himself has kept the law. The law is no longer a letter that kills because Christ himself was killed. Christ both suffered and satisfied the law. And so the law can become a law of liberty for those in Christ, by which God guides us to the life of full fruition, a life that finds its ultimate purpose, its ultimate end in loving and enjoying him. And so James reminds us that we are recipients of great mercy, that we are brought to God by Christ's merits alone, that we bring nothing to the table, that all of us stand wholly destitute before the cross. Yet all of us partake extravagantly in the riches of Christ. And so there's no place for partiality here because we are a community founded wholly upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. There's no place for partiality because to claim partiality is to act against the gospel. As Augustine tells us, Christ as God is the country to which we journey And Christ as human is the path by which we get there. Which also tells us something else. When we have faith in Christ, we not only recognize Christ as the means, as the how, because again, he suffered and lived on our behalf, but we also recognize Christ himself as the end. We recognize Christ himself as very God of very God. Because when we look at Christ in faith, We see both means and end, both how and what. Christ leads us to God as God. When we gaze upon Christ, we see that God himself has come after us and endured the greatest sufferings for us, all to bring us back to himself. To look at Christ is to look at the God who does not merely send a servant to bring back his wayward child, but the God who who himself goes on the most arduous of journey to bring you back to him. Christ just is God in search of his wayward children. Christ just is God's mercy in its most gracious expression. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, just is the object of our faith, our means, our end, our how, and our what the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. And so to truly see Christ is to dispel absolutely any and all partiality. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to learn from your word. We thank you, Father, that you have welcomed us mercifully in the gospel We are poor. We are destitute. We have nothing to offer you as we stand empty-handed before the cross, but you have lavishly, in abundance, given us your riches in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Apply that truth to our life and infuse that truth in the way that we live out our community. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.